Let's talk about politics this Christmas. Let's get deep in the weeds. Cause more unnecessary tension is what this family needs. Let's trim the tree with chaos and see how weird we get. Let's talk about politics this Christmas. We haven't even started drinking yet. New for Christmas 2020 from Awesome Tech Records and Tapes, it's Let's Talk About Politics This Christmas. That's right, Let's Talk About Politics This Christmas is the hot new Christmas jam from Brandon and Beth that's definitely not at all based on real arguments we've had with our families. Check out the whole track at brandonandbeth.bandcamp.com, and if you're a family member, please don't yell at us about this. Merry Christmas! We used podcast. It was very effective. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is I Think You'd Be Into It, the podcast about your problematic faves. I'm your host, Brandon Beck. I'm your other host, Beth Scorzato. And uh, joining us today to talk about the wet and wild world of uh, Nintendo and Super Nintendo era RPGs is uh, the one and only Matt Pick. Matt, welcome to the show. What's up? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be yeah. here. How's it, uh, how's it hanging in, in your neck of Los Angeles? Oh, it's hanging. It's definitely hanging. <laughs> yeah, you guys are you guys are downtown, so like whenever there's like a protest or something big happens, it all happens outside your fucking window. God bless you. Yeah, it's uh, been quite a war zone out here lately. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, flashbangs and mortars that uh, would, you know, you would think they'd be used in wartime situations, but they're just setting them off in my, you know, sort of... Uh, my crosswalk <laughs> all so those fireworks they didn't somehow set off 24 hours a day in july are all going off now yeah right right outside the chase bank cafe yeah it's pretty terrifying uh but we've been uh we've been hanging tough we've been hanging uh tough uh, luckily we have uh you know four giant windows looking right out at the action which is really nice at four in the morning when you really <laughs> can't hide from it you know so before we get into uh the the main quest line of our episode today uh we're gonna do a little side quest wow you're really proud of yourself for that aren't you i, I see what you're doing here i super duper am yeah. uh but we're gonna do a quick little side quest Feel into it. uh things we're into this week okay. if anybody has one they'd like to share um oh you don't have one you don't have one this i week? i'm trying i'm fine. racking my it's brains fine. Okay, i started cool. finally so um they finally put um now that HBO Max has, like, all the DC stuff and the DC app uh, is dead, uh, which is fine with me because I never wanted to pay for it, all the DC stuff is now on HBO Max, which means I'm finally able to watch season three of Young Justice, um, which I just started. <laughs> What's Young Justice? Oh, Young Justice is an animated DC show. It was first out in, like, 
oh, don't quote me on this, but I want to say like 2015, 2016, they did a season one. Um, and then it was like about a year and a half, like, and it was, it was a huge, it was on like WB Kids maybe, like, I don't know, like it did fine, but it was like a huge hit with the people who were really into it because it's a little bit older than Teen Titans Go, but it's not, but it still focuses on the kids. Um, and it's kind of its own uh, universe. It's considered Earth-16, the Young Justice universe. Um, Young Justice. And it's it's just, it's really good. And it's really, like, the storytelling is great. The characters are are really well fleshed out. And um, it's, it's just, it's a really good interpretation of DC characters uh, told through the lens of a lot of these younger kids and also told over many years. Like, when we first meet Dick Grayson, he's like, you know, a 12-year-old Robin, and, like, he's now currently, like, 21-year-old Nightwing. Um, there are a few time jumps, but um, there was some heartbreaking shit that happened at the end of season two, and then they were just like, well, Young Justice is canceled, and everybody was like, what? <laughs> no! And then in 2018, they finally made a Young Justice season three, but it didn't really, like, air anywhere normal because they were trying to launch their app at the time, so it was kind of hard to watch if you didn't want to get the app. So I never watched it. And um, so I didn't rewatch seasons one and two because the trauma is still very real. And I remember everything that happened in season one and two. I've watched it multiple times. Uh, but anyway, I'm finally getting to watch Young Justice season three. And I'm so excited. OK, so I just have to say, uh, if there are any producers listening to this, uh, feel free to steal my idea. When I heard Young Justice, I'm like, oh, my God, somebody finally made a prequel to Columbo where Columbo <laughs> child discovering that he just wants to be detective. It was like Detective Conan meets Columbo. Young Justice coming to the CW in 2021. Hey, I am hey. now obsessed with the idea of somebody drawing like a little like baby Columbo yeah. in a diaper and a trench coat going, uh, excuse me, one more thing. <laughs> you get the boomer something to be excited <laughs> about, you know? I mean, let's get him back. And get get like baby baby Columbo baby Jim Rockford Columbo <laughs> baby back. Matlock. This is great! Oh my God, murder she wrote. <laughs> I'm I'm also gonna state again my point that uh, the new uh, Perry Mason is real good, but Homeboy is dead ass playing Columbo. Yeah, he kind of is. Yeah. Um, but you know what? He's actually British. Cut him some slack. He's got to imitate someone's accent. Um, yeah, and it's Bob yeah. Hoskins that he's imitating. <laughs> But that's that's what I'm into this week is Young Justice. It's just it's a great show. I'm glad they finally did a season three watching it. I'm just like anxious and excited all the time. Um, the animation style is really great, too. It's kind of like similar to how, you know, I, I said, like genre wise, it's like a little more. It's a little older than Teen Titans Go, but not necessarily like about the adults. It also similarly is kind of like a next evolution of style on um kind of like the Batman adventure style. It's not quite that cartoony, but it's 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 like slightly more realistic. It's got like strong lines. It kind of lands somewhere between like Batman Adventures and Archer, which is like a weird way to describe it. But um I don't know. The animation's really good. There's like a lot of fight scenes. It's beautiful. It's it's a great show. I really like it. But like be prepared for some emotional trauma if you're going to watch it, especially if you're at all attached to these characters. That's what I need. A little emotional trauma with my 2020 just to wash it down. Yeah. Again, these are but I mean like they're fake. They're they're not real people. It's fine. Oh, oh, we'll see about. We're going to explore that concept in this podcast today. All right then. What are you into this week, Matt? We'll give Matt we'll give Brandon another minute to try and think of something. Oh no, I, I got one. Oh, you got one? 
But if Matt wants to go, Matt can go. Oh, I want to go. Let's do that. Let's, okay, let's then go. That. Yeah, okay, yeah. so like it was so funny. So uh, JJ is my girlfriend. JJ's been on the show before. Um, JJ is crazy about Stephen King. And just randomly, we were talking about things that traumatized us as children. Like you do. You know, as, as one does. And I had this one random memory. I remember I was a kid. I was watching something on TV because my parents let me watch TV as a kid. And this is the one time that that really blew up in their face was I, it was late at night. I'm watching cable TV and there's this movie. And I did. I didn't remember what this movie was, but it turns out it was Stephen King's film called Sometimes They Come Back. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this movie, but the poster for it, as soon as I saw the poster, I just immediately had this knee jerk like, oh, my fucking God, this is it. It's basically a picture of like flames with this like 19, like, you know, 50s, 60s, like black flame cruiser and like these three greaser kids. And, you know, the whole like thing that fucked me up as a kid was. There's this scene right at the end, or I can't remember if it's the beginning or the end, but the greasers are in the car and they're in like a tunnel and this like train from hell, because this is Stephen King, is like tearing through the tunnel and like hits the car and like boom, everything blows up. But then boom, camera cuts to like their faces melting all like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> As a young child, this left quite an impression on me this was like now this was my fear every time i like looked in my bathroom which was kind of hallway-esque and tunnel-esque i would imagine these three greasers with like melting like skeleton faces like running towards me and i was just like god yeah i'm glad i uh, got through that and then I just happened to like be, go- be on instagram you know five minutes later scrolling and then movieposters.com shows me a poster for sometimes they come back and i just was like Oh, you're good, Instagram. You're a little too good. That's like they brought back the film that traumatized me. So now, of course, I had to find it and see it. So I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through my reviewing of this film. And I have to say, it's incredible. It's actually a really, really good, like 80s like escape. It's a, movie. Uh, it's a 1991 American made for television horror film based on oh, the 1974 Lord. short story of the same name. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like it, too. It definitely has that like TV feel. In fairness, it says originally optioned as a segment of the 1985 feature film Stephen King's Cat Eye. It was developed into a separate feature eventually. Yeah, so if you want to kind of uh, go down a deep dive of random Stephen King made-for-TV horror glory, uh, I highly recommend that film. Even though I haven't finished it yet, I'm sure it's going to end with a bang. Have we ever talked on the show about uh, Stephen King's like short story adaptation policy? Because it's really fascinating. Um, I don't think we covered it in the Stephen King episode, but you can talk about it now, and then JJ's going to be mad at all of us for talking about this without her. <laughs> we talked about Stephen King more on my podcast than she got to talk about it on her podcast. That's what she's going to be mad about. <laughs> you know what? That's that's fine. I'm not afraid of her. Uh, Ooh, those are big words. I'm texting her right now. <laughs> uh, Stephen King's... Uh, short story adaptation policy, and it's been like this for decades at this point, is that he will sell you the rights to adapt one of his short stories for a dollar as long as you agree to not make any money off of it. And this is something he's been doing for ages, so people are able to adapt. It's a, a lot of times it's used for like students and you know people who are just sort of learning. But it's a really interesting uh, policy, especially from such a huge author, Interesting. To basically, like, allow large chunks of his catalog to just be uh, adapted by kind of whoever for a dollar, you know? But it's also a kind of Stephen King thing to do. 
I mean, if I didn't know better, I'd say they were giving Wheel of Time away for a dollar, too. I mean, if anyone saw that. <laughs> if you wheel your time, you'll yeah. be first in line. Are you familiar with the Wheel of Time, Brandon? I know of it. Okay. Yada. Yeah, it's a whole thing. That Who who wrote it? Robert Jordan. Jordan. I was going to okay. say Jordan, I think, yeah. It, I think it's one of those big, like, giant overwhelming fantasy series that I sort of know of but am too scared to even get near I know of it I haven't read it um I read uh I got into Piers Anthony instead as a kid so it's kind of like you do one or the other <laughs> yep oh god I thought you meant Piers Morgan for a second I was like Piers Morgan no I the Zamp series <laughs> oh, yeah no. yeah oh yeah I remember Zamp I still have all of them I, I well I have a lot of them I've been rereading them <laughs> I remember when you posted about restarting Xanth a little while ago, a uh, friend of the show, Lee Walton, commented on your tweet and said, like, yeah, they just left those on the shelves. Yeah, for, well, because I, I, I made a comment about how I read it when I was in, like, the fifth grade, and, like, I was, like, reading um, reading Piers Anthony as an adult. I'm like, wow, he sure has some feelings about women. <sighs> and then that's why Lee was like, yeah, they just left those on the shelves for kids to read. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i don't know terry goodkind is another sort of like schlocky fantasy oh, yeah picked up and uh the big joke with him and like my friends was it's like oh what fantasy world have you arrived in young female i hope it's not terry goodkind's world because like you didn't make the mistake of leaving the house today did you to go and get some water from the well it's like rape gangs they're coming it doesn't matter you know what country you're in they're they're in all of them <laughs> like oh, and, and even if you're a man, it's like oh, rape o'clock. Yeah, like, all the rape in these books. Yeah, yeah. Man. Nice. <laughs> anyway, Brandon, what are you into this week? This week, I am into uh, an album called Mother Earth's Plantasia by Mort Garson. Uh, Mother's Plantasia is an album that was released in 1976, and it, it's a it's a synthesizer album uh, of music designed specifically for plants to listen to. <laughs> and it was only f- up until like within the last decade, maybe if if not even the last couple of years. The only way you were able to get it was if you bought a house plant from a store called Mother Earth in Los Angeles or purchased a Simmons mattress from a Sears outlet, both of which came with the record, according to Wikipedia. Um, so for decades, it was this kind of like under the radar, like kind of only synth nerds uh, knew about it. But um, in a couple years ago, uh, this uh, company, Sacred Bones Records, re- uh, reissued the album and put it on all the streaming services and stuff. And it's so chill. Like, if you want to just put something on at the end of the day that is that is just, like, chill and calming and just, like, serene, it, it's it's a great record to listen to and just, like, unwind. Because they're all... All the, the compositions are really tight and, and interesting, and it kind of jumps all over the place. One of them is just straight up, uh... Zelda's hat... Why is it weird? She looks like a nun. No. Uh, 
No, the, the, that's that's well. I mean, that's not the, the actual lyrics to the song from Zelda, yes. but it, it is straight up the melody to uh, one of the songs from Ocarina of Time. Yes, uh, and I think it's that one. Somebody stole Mother Earth's Plantasia and put it in Ocarina of Time. Savage. Yup. Wow. Yeah, there's an there's for the record there's an Ash what you play in like a very early one, um, where she's playing Ocarina of Time and there's like she makes up a bunch of songs to the different she makes up a bunch of lyrics to the different songs and that's one of them. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a really good Epona. one. <laughs> here's your song. Here's a, oh yeah, Epona, here's your song. Get the fuck right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it rolls. Um but yeah, uh Plantasia is is great. Uh Mort Garson's having a little bit of a resurgence yeah, right didn't now. Yeah, just come out with another like album. A uh a comp- I don't I don't remember the name of the label, but they're like a light meatic kind of uh, label just released a like deep compilation of unreleased stuff of his. It has some like Plantasia demos in it, or like his theme for like the Blob Returns or something like that. Just like a lot of cool, weird old synth stuff. So if you're interested in either plants or cool synthesizer sounds, check out Mother Earth's Plantasia by Mort Garson. I'm going to. Which, which was a recommendation to me by a friend of the show, Jen Overstreet, and I, I, I've i told them this, but I've listened to his record probably 40 times since uh, they posted about it on our Discord a couple months ago. That has like, tie-ins with, with today, believe it or not. Uh, you know, because, you know, RPGs, I think the main appeal is, is the music, and it was all synth, so, I mean... Well, yeah, let's get the fuck into it, then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I can actually kind of kick this off. Um, Go I got it. into um, RPGs, I think, because they had a real sort of visceral emotional pull to me. But it was the first impact that I had was through the music. RPGs that were uh, produced specifically on the NES or SNES were really defined by the limitations of what instruments were available to the composers at the time. Uh These people really only had certain sounds that they could use, right? So the fact that, you know, they came up with melodies which are not only still replicated and used in memory. They're iconic. They (laughs) are iconic. I mean, you know, Zelda's theme, if anyone in our generation, even if you didn't play games, knows Zelda's theme, right? Same with with World 1-1 from Mario. Which, like, of course, not an RPG, but still the same limitations. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, you know, RPGs obviously didn't have the monopoly on good music. I mean, those uh, chiptunes, like that community uh, about 10 years ago was all I listened to. <laughs> Were you a big uh, Anamanaguchi head? Oh, yeah, I love Anamanaguchi. They are amazing. Uh, they might actually, <laughs> I'm going to sound like an old curmudgeon for saying this, they might be a little too modern for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds like something Brandon would say, so you're fine. Yeah. There's a really good episode. If, if you want to know a little bit more about how like 8-bit music actually works, there's a really good episode of Strong Songs by Kirk Hamilton that came out a couple months ago where he digs super deep into the world one one theme from uh mario by kochi kondo um and like really gets into like how the limitations of the nes worked and that he basically only had three sounds he could play at any given time and it's 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 a really interesting like very deep dive into how the technical limitations of that console really led to some incredible music yeah um i remember uh just sort of wondering how it was that these composers, I, I still actually to this day don't really understand synth very well and how it's created. I've, I've sort of like looked into the original, um, what were they called? Like the, 
the things that you would go in and like flip a switch. What, did Sorry, a cat? Gil just bit me. <laughs> Gil. Gil. The cat does not want to talk about this. <laughs> he can't hear it. I just, I was playing with his paws and he was like, no. <laughs> it's like, if we aren't going to talk about Mass Effect, I'm going to bite you. <laughs> Sorry. That <laughs> just caught oh, me off guard. It was totally right in the fine. fleshy part of my hand. <laughs> Gil's a big fan of Bioware RPGs and is mad we're not covering them. Fuck Bioware. No, I, I get what you're, you know what though? Speaking of you being like, oh, I'm maybe an old curmudgeon. I was listening to something on the radio the other day and I was like, Synthesizer should have been left alone to just make sound effects. This is too much. Fuck this. <laughs> what have they done? Taken I was like, I was like, synthesizers were a mistake. You take that back. Yeah, I, I love it. I think, um, especially for people in our generation, um, there's something about the sounds of even the NES. Like, I'm not even talking music. I'm just talking like the boings and the and the bangs and the beeps. They take you somewhere, and it's almost like a warm blanket, you know, because it really takes you to a time where you didn't have any real problems. And I think that's part of the appeal of revisiting old games and RPGs for me is it takes me back to when I was like eight years old and it was everything was like so simple and it was very objective based. It's like I need to get to the next town and, you know, just like very slowly grow it. I think RPGs actually are great for kids because it, it sort of begins to give you those sort of like mental coping mechanisms for how to like, you know, press forward through like trouble and struggle and like how to deal with that. Teaches it's you very, how to grind. It, it teaches you how to grind, man. Because I mean, life is going to be a grind. And yep. uh, the sooner you make your peace with that, you know, Japan I, certainly knew. <laughs> I really love not just early RPGs, but all RPGs. It's, I think we've probably talked about on the show before how I'm like really bad at video games. Mm -hmm. But what I am really bad at specifically is platformers. Yep. Um, and I feel like when we were kids, like so much focus was on platformers. That I Especially was for like, kids games. Yeah, I was like, well, I guess I just can't play video games. But like when I first came to RPGs, I was like, this is for me, a kid who, you know, speaking of I read Piers Anthony, for me, a kid who was like super into like sci-fi and fantasy shit, like RPGs were so cool because yeah. they actually, they, they, I was more invested in the story than the fight mechanics. Exactly. You know, exactly. you like, want, you want more story and that's yeah. what you grind. You, yeah. you work to get more story. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. Do you do you remember what the first RPG that you played that really uh, grabbed onto you was, and and why? SNES Secret of Mana. Um, when you put the cartridge in the machine, you press play, you press power. They hit you with that iconic opening track, uh, the Secret of Mana opening song. For some reason, I'm forgetting the actual title of that song, but none of us knew it then anyway, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, and you Love know, theme it, from Secret of Mana. It's just the um, the piano, the, this echoing piano melody. Just a couple notes, like dun 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 dun, and it like starts to swell, and like boom, they hit you with like this incredible visual, and you just knew before you even press start that you were in for something special. And it took my breath away when I was young. It really did. And um, I never played a game like that uh, before. And uh, I just remember, like, I went to school the next day and I started talking. I'm like, have you guys heard of this game? Like, am I the only one who knows about this? I started, like, spreading the gospel of Squaresoft at that point. And I don't think I've ever stopped being, like, a priest of Squaresoft. I really, like, I do proselytize people. And, you know, Square Enix, I'm not really going to go too far down the Square Enix road. Today. <laughs> I feel like they kind of lost a little something in that merger. But like yeah. if you're talking original Squaresoft, Squaresoft was responsible for Secret of Mana, of course. Final Fantasy uh, two and three, as they were known back there in Japan, they were four and six. Um, and then you know, just like uh, 
oh god there was like so many other gateway drugs from that um oh yeah I know we talked a lot. We talked a lot recently, and actually, it's not the first time on this show we've talked about Chrono Trigger. (laughs) Oh no, that's true. We've talked about Chrono Trigger before. I think in the uh, uh, Animal Crossing. Usually, in the context of you got to the twenty yard line and then stopped. Yeah, well, that's how I get. I've I've literally only finished like three games in my entire life. Um, I tend to just like play all the way through and then stop. I've played like nine to 16 hours of Chrono Trigger twice. But I remember the last time we talked about it, I then like actively went and downloaded it on my phone and was like trying to play it on my phone. And I was like, fuck this. This interface sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the interface on the phone is not great, Good. but when you're like a hardcore, like Chrono meth addict like me, uh, you'll take what you can fucking get. Oh yeah. Don't get me wrong. I still played like an hour and a half of it. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've beat Chrono Trigger, but the real fascination to me as a 36 year old is that I'm not sick of it yet. I'm really like not tired of the story. Well, you can make choices. Yeah. It's yeah. not necessarily always the same game. But the thing is, like, you know, I like to go hear what these people say. I'm kind of a completionist. Like, you know, when I play yeah. through a game, I don't like skip rooms. Like, I, I really do talk to everybody. I like yeah. to get the full like immersive experience and like see if i missed anything you know i try to be a completionist i talk to every person in a pokemon village (laughs) oh yeah yeah totally totally um so yeah i mean i i actually think that chrono trigger is is a bit of an anomaly in the rpg world because in my opinion it's kind of the perfect game it did something that had never been done before it brought time travel into the rpg genre which and it was executed flawlessly it really was in a way that was fun but exciting what is the uh, what is the TLDR on the story of Secret of Mana if if you've never played it? Because I I haven't really put I've I've like played twenty minutes of it just like on, as, as a ROM, but I've never put enough time into well, it. Well, you do know, know these are two different games, yes? Right, so so two yeah. different games. But in- oh, I'm sorry, uh, Secret of Mana, uh, whichever one we were. So talking. We, were we were talking about, about Chrono Trigger. Trigger. Oh, then yeah, you know, Chrono Trigger. It's interesting that, that you bring this up. I didn't know this. I didn't know this. Do you know that Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger were actually part of the same development team, and those were two games that split at one point? And so things that were not used in Secret of Mana ended up in Chrono Trigger, which is why those characters look so similar. So it's a it's a common sort of confusion people have is like, oh, why do the characters in Chrono Trigger and Secret of Mana like look identical? You know, it's like the girl with like the pink and it's like the boy with the big red hair. And it's like, that's that's a pretty specific look. And it was kind of just the square so, house style at that point, too. Right, right. And that's what people thought. But no, they were actually supposed to be the same game. But because of the limitations in technology, they were like, guys, we cannot fit all this on a single cartridge. So they had to sort of throw out a, a bunch of really good ideas. And those ideas grew into what was to be Chrono Trigger a few years after Secret of Mana. So um, I can give you like brief synopses for both. So Secret of Mana, the stories are not really related at all. It was really sort of the graphic and the gameplay styles that were sort of revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Out of these games. Mm-hmm. Secret of Mana was the first game to really kind of uh, have this sort of active battle system. But before I get into that, let's let's just stick to stories. So basically, Secret of Mana, it's you start as a kid. And you're and these kids are bullying you in the village and they push you off a bridge and you fall down this like waterfall and you land on your back. And that's how the game starts. And you kind of go wandering through the town. It's like this sort of you know, what we would consider now to be like the tutorial forest. Right. And you're kind of going through and everything's level one. And then you find the sword and you pull the sword from the stone and all hell breaks loose. Once you pull the sword from the stone, now monsters start appearing in the world again. 
and like everything is thrown out of balance, but it was all meant to be. And so basically the story kind of goes through to like, you know, classic Squaresoft story. There is an evil empire that wants to re-harness the power of mana or magic. And they want to use this power to, you know, reign over the world and, and dominate, you know, classic sort of setup. And it's up to you to sort of, you know, join the scrappy, you know, rebellion. And in Secret of Money, you kind of are the scrappy rebellion to, uh, you know, basically uh, restore balance to the world. And uh, that's that's what you do in Secret of Mana through this really, really sort of wild and replayable battle system where you just, you know, you have to swing your sword. But what was crazy about it was you can't just button mash in Secret of Mana, which is how all games up until that point were. They put in this counter. So it's like you swing your sword and you have to wait about three seconds until you can swing your sword again and do any kind of legitimate damage. So at first you're like, this is bullshit. It's a really deliberate game. I was under the impression that the Secret of Mana was turn-based. It's not turn-based. Chrono Trigger, however. is turn-based. Yes. So what Which happened- is why I can handle playing it, because I'm not great right. at fighting games either. <laughs> so in Fair. between Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger's release, a little game you may have heard of, Final Fantasy uh, 3 or 6, came out. And that game changed everything for Squaresoft. It was one of the biggest commercial successes in the United States. Obviously a massive success in Japan as well and worldwide. Uh, that and that game- was the last one before 7, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. It was, yeah. So right after this game, so basically that was this moment on the NES where Final Fantasy's like, we're going to do everything we can with this technology. And it's right before they make the jump to PlayStation and 3D. So they're basically pushing the limits of what this technology is capable of storytelling wise, character wise. I mean, I think Final Fantasy 3 has like 20 plus characters. Uh, you know, everyone has their own theme song. It's insane. You know what I mean? And so, but the one thing that they introduced with that was the uh, uh, ATB, Active Time Battle System. So, um, you know, that sort of introduced this kind of dynamic turn-based combat where there was like this sort of bar with the timer where it was like, yes, combat is turn-based, but they put like this sort of like, once you attack, you have to wait a certain amount of time. And um, that you couldn't you couldn't just sit there and like think about your no, move for 20 minutes because the no. other guy will attack you. Right. So if you just sit there watching your meter and like, oh, what item should I use? You're getting hit that whole time, which kind of it found this interesting blend between like, oh, like, OK, it is turn based. But like, I have to be on my toes because I'm getting my ass kicked if I'm not like moving fast. So that was really exciting. People love that. They took that and finessed it into what they were going to do in Chrono Trigger. Um, but the thing is, Chrono Trigger took this old Secret of Mana system where instead of like going to the battle screen like on Final Fantasy, where everyone's like sort of like, you know, uh, like uh, you're in profile and you're attacking and it has no relation to the map you're on. Chrono Trigger took that away. And now you're having fights just like Secret of Mana on the map you were walking around in. So the combat was now huh. integrated with the overworld map and it was done very fluidly. With this uh, ATB system. So it, it was kind of just like really, and still to this day, it's kind of exciting to, to play so these it's kind of. Play. I mean, we all, you know, as weird nerds are like, Final Fantasy changed the game, but like Final Fantasy literally changed the game. Like, it, did. it just did. It did. <laughs> and like, th- this particular wave of RPGs was sort of the like last big push of that kind of game before the PlayStation era. Exactly. Because that, w- that was sort of the, the moment where everything kind of... Sh- that was sort of the tectonic shift uh, was when Squaresoft got bought by uh, uh, Sony. Right. And then they they jumped up to uh, 
PlayStation. But like, it, I, I had not realized that so many more games were were already experimenting with like slightly different combat systems. Oh, uh, yeah. The the one that comes to mind the most for me, and I think it's the only Super Nintendo RPG I've ever beaten, is uh, Mario RPG, which was uh, co-created by Sega, uh, by a, a Square and Nintendo, and is say, to this day is one of the best. Yeah, definitely not Sega. Yeah, right. Um, no, that that would be a Mario RPG at the Winter Games 2020. God, sorry. Real quick tangent, though. I just remember the with the time Sonic kissed a human woman. Ooh. Right? Yeah, that yeah, was weird, wasn't that it? That was weird and bad. Anyway. Or, or that time Wario rode a photorealistic horse. That's true. <laughs> that was great, though. That was that was uh, that, that was very good. That was very good. Um, Dude, Mario RPG was like heavily, I think, paying homage to you know these games that came before it that were kind of dark and gritty. And that's what was so fun about Mario RPG was those systems were familiar because people had played a lot of these other RPGs. Yeah. And like the one of the great things about Mario games uh, that that aren't the like mainline, you know, Mario Brothers or 64 or Galaxy kind of entries is that like the whole thing of Mario games is that they will take a genre and make sort of the most accessible version of it. Like the version of it that you could play with your mom. And that, and I don't mean that as like a ding at all. But like, hey, playing games with your mom is awesome, right? Um, <laughs> it's, but it's like, my only happy memory of early childhood. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it, it it's really it, that's the that's the secret of of like Mario spinoffs, and I think Mario RPG really did that for a, a certain segment of players. Like, yeah, I had I think never it got more people in. Like, just as you, say, you hadn't played any of those secret of games, but when you played Mario RPG, it forced you to kind of be like, hey, what else is there out there on the market that I've you know like like when it when it came out i was i think like eight when mario rpg came out and i didn't know what an rpg was see that was the age that was I, eight years old is i think that's the magic number that's when i got oh it. yeah oh yeah well i also think uh, this might be me misinterpreting just due to my like lack of knowledge of video games but to me mario always felt like japan's best attempt at like Americanizing what they were doing from a design aesthetic in that like I feel like Mario and Mario games were a better entry point for people into like RPGs because at the time everything was like oh those are like Final Fantasy all of those like the design aesthetic of them were so like bordering on anime and it was so it felt so foreign and so like Japanese to an American audience whereas Mario is just a little cartoon plumber and he was Italian <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, and they were also very like high fantasy too, which is not the most accessible uh, thing culturally for Americans. Yeah, I mean, even as a kid, uh, I remember looking in the uh, you know sort of instruction manual for Final Fantasy, and um, the artwork for every Final Fantasy game to this day has been done by one artist, uh, Yoshitaka Amano, who is this really recognizably stylistic guy who he's known for doing these very high fantasy type drawings that are very heavily, heavily dark. They're not like happy drawings. They're edgy. There's like a danger to them. So They're like you know, city drawings Dude, think about it. If you're marketing to an eight year old, like, like what is this? This is part of like what I think is so buck wild about what Squaresoft did was they were the first company not to pander to children. They basically were like, yeah, we're going to give you like, adult storylines people are gonna die people are gonna be getting hurt and they're gonna be scared and we're just gonna give it to you without a condom we're just gonna give it to you straight 
Well, I think they realized that like when they when video games kind of first popped, it was just like Pong and Pac-Man, you know, and like I and I think to some degree there that was the sort of stigma honestly up until like the last maybe a decade ago yeah. uh when like suddenly the sort of cultural consensus that like oh no video games are cool video games are fine everybody plays video games you know just kind of kind of changed but like i think square was really smart in realizing like no there there are people that want more out of this medium and want more storytelling and want more depth which like not that like you know the Mario games aren't deep, but there, there's not a, there's not really a story there aside from Save the Princess. You know, there is a definite like kind of scalability of NES games. Like you can go from Mario to Zelda, right? And See, Zelda, that I've done. You know, Zelda Zelda's not like heavy. It's Zelda wasn't originally like you know a super dark story. I mean, there were moments that were dark, but you know, they started introducing elements that would later sort of be a little more. Uh, fully fleshed out in like these RPGs by Squaresoft. But like, you know, Zelda, I think one of the first times I ever felt like an emotional, like need to finish a game was Zelda Link to the Past. And um, the funny thing about that game was I didn't even get to the end. Honestly, I rented it from Blockbuster Video and somebody had already beat it. And there yeah. was a save file right before the final battle. Okay. And I remember as a kid, I still couldn't beat it. I like played the game all day. I couldn't beat the final boss. I went to bed that night and I had these like intense dreams that I was like running through a graveyard and like Princess Zelda needed me and I needed to save her. And I just remember like waking up with this like fucking anime level fire. Like I <laughs> like I'm going like, to gonna like gather my cosmo and fucking defeat you know the dark lord and just you know shoot what? bolt upright in bed and you've got goku hair yeah i was super saiyan 3 that day man i ran to my bedroom and i turned on the tv and i beat that game and the credits played and zelda came out and something special had happened there there was like something really special about that moment I did cry. I cried during the credits. I was that emotionally attached to a game I hadn't even played, you know, which is what's so crazy about somebody was able to like hit my buttons as a young man with story. And I was I was I was going to be hooked for for the rest of my life. That's something I do. That's an experience, an experience that was so particularly of that time that I really do miss the like you could just rent a game and then you'd have a save file that some rando had (laughs) that would be like way far or like really overpowered or like when Final Fantasy seven sort of uh, first infiltrated my like friend group when it uh, around about when it came out, uh, this one kid. I don't know how he got it, but on his memory card, he had a, a save file that uh, in the first disc of Final Fantasy VII, Cloud had Meteor Rain in Midgar, which is like the like second to last like final move you get for Cloud. He has on like the first six hours of the game. How do you even do that? What, do you game shark that shit? Uh, well, the, the thing about Final Fantasy VII is that like, all of the stuff you, all of the items were, uh, all of the moves like that were level based. So like, yeah, oh, so you, you could, could just level up in Midgar. Yeah, you could just grind in Midgar. It would take for friggin' ever, but you could do it. <laughs> and somebody left the Holy Grail in a blockbuster video, just like enjoy, kids. I've grinded for like seventy hours, and I have no idea where this kid got this save file, but it, it became like the one that we all like. It was this like legendary thing of like, there's a save file that has Meteor Rain in Midgar. <laughs> 
started making the rounds, right? And there's another one where you're in the third disc and you can just go to Emerald and Ruby Weapon and get your ass handed to you. <laughs> um, but like it was so it felt like it felt like getting to see the like end of a game that I knew I would never get to on my own. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that was actually one of the few Final Fantasies. I took it all the way to the hill. I, I got to the end of that game and I never finished it because I hadn't finished all the side quests and I kind of didn't oh, seven? feel right of seven. Yeah, I didn't feel right finishing that game without, you know, getting the Knights of the Round. I didn't like do everything. And so um, I just kind of stopped playing it. It was weird. I pulled a Beth. I pulled total Beth in that moment. Yeah, I just, well, for me, one, I just, I, sometimes I top off on, um, top out on my ability and then just stop. Sometimes I lose interest. Um, but also I think it's partially that when I was, so the first RPG I ever completed, so I didn't have, uh, and we've talked about this before, but I didn't really have video game systems in my, I mean, not, I didn't really have, I didn't have video game systems in my house growing up. So all of my experiences of early games were playing at other people's houses until, one year for Christmas, I was in, like, the seventh grade. So this is, like, a little later than what we're talking about. But in the seventh grade, I got a, uh, I really wanted a Game Boy Color so I could play Pokemon. And my dad got it for me for Christmas, and he got me Pokemon Silver. And my mother told me that I wasn't allowed to bring the video game back to my house. So, of course, I did, and I hid it. Um, and then for a while I forgot where I hit it and then I found it again and I, I beat Pokemon Silver. But what happened was I, I wasn't, like, done. I, I went through... The like I beat the elite four or whatever. And then I was like, the next thing you come out of the cave and you can like hop down this series of like hills. And when you hop down these series of hills, you end up back in pallet town. And I was furious because I had stuff I hadn't completed. And now I was on the wrong side of the map. And I had all this shit that I hadn't finished yet. And so I think part of me is always worried that, like, similarly, like, I didn't finish all the side quests and now the game's going to be over and it's not going to let me go back and finish. Yeah. I mean, that I was, was the so thing. so mad. You invest that kind of energy in something and you, you know, you grind these characters. You do kind of take ownership of them. So I think uh, ending the game can sometimes feel a bit, like, I don't know, like, counterintuitive. like... It's like, okay, I'm going to finish the game, but it's like, what happens to all this work I've put in? Hence what Chrono Trigger did, which changed the game. They introduced the new game plus. So when you beat oh. Chrono Trigger, guess what, bro? You get to take the same levels and the same items you got and start the game over and you keep all of your levels and items that you won. Yep. And that combined with the fact that there was like 12 different endings you could get depending on where you go in. Yeah, it was it was a game that had branching paths, which at the time right. was wild. Like I said earlier, I was like, there are different choices you can make. So it's not necessarily the same game every time. Right. So like if you decide to beat the game at like, you know, after the second chapter, when you just meet the frog, your yeah. ending is like the frog marries the queen and everybody that was in your party becomes frogs because now everyone's a frog. Yeah. You know, that uh, that actually uh leads nicely to uh the one listener question we got for this week's episode uh yeah. from past guests of the show frankie griffin when playing that sort of game does the guest ever actually feel like they're playing the role i can't really feel like that without meaningful choices which old school rpgs tend to lack at which like chrono trigger notwithstanding i think he's right that there there, there wasn't a huge amount of like meaningful choice in those old games I see what he's saying. So basically, because RPGs are really funneling you down a really specific path, 
how do you take ownership of the decisions you're making? Is that kind of a question? Well, like, how do you take ownership? And do you ever feel like the character is distinctly yours in the way that, like, say in a game like Fallout or Mass Effect, where you're, like, creating the character from right. the ground up right. and, and re like, you have so many choices in dialogue and, you know, who right. you're going to bang and stuff right. like that? I think it kind of depends on the writing of the game, too. Like, whether or not the writing lends itself to self-insert or if the writing makes it clear that you are observing the story that you are also playing. Because it usually seems like it's the latter. There's a whole philosophy that went into the design of RPGs specifically to address the question that you've just asked. And Hell it's yeah. basically um, the the um, idea of the silent protagonist. So in most classic RPGs, you play one main character and that's your character. And when people talk to you, your dialogue is sort of, it's not typed out, it's inferred. So people are responsible like, oh yeah, I knew you'd be into it, like Chrono or whatever, because he's the silent protagonist. And there are a few opportunities for you to say yes or no at certain times, but generally speaking, what I think is so impressive about the writing on games like that is th they give you a cast of characters around you, say like seven different characters, and they relate to you as the silent protagonist. And when they ask you the question, because your dialogue is not given to you, the only thing that's given to you is the response of your companions. You do, in fact, take a lot of ownership of that character. And I think you project a lot of your yourself into the journey because it's you. There, There is no avatar that's really standing in uh, speaking for you. It's silence. It's it's only what you're imagining, it's, and it's it's a way to kind of you know keep your imagination going. And I think that's definitely more effective in these early kind of games, like before we, like you said, we had such limited sounds. There were no voice right. actors. <laughs> Nobody was speaking these lines. Nobody was speaking for you. Right. I, I like that personally. I prefer that. I prefer reading because cutscenes are so slow. <laughs> it's interesting now that like that has sort of flipped. Uh, from how it used to be where like your characters in RPGs are much, much deeper and much you have so much more, uh, you know, control and choice. Whereas like in games like Mario and Zelda now, they've really still latched on to the silent protagonist, excuse yeah. me, silent protagonist thing. Like Link still doesn't really talk all that much. Mario didn't talk all that much. Uh, Sonic won't shut up sometimes, but like, yeah. you know, it's, it's just interesting how those how those have swapped so heavily. I mean, the only thing about them is they have these really kind of iconic personalities like Sonic, Mario, Zelda, like, the, you know, let to go. You know, they have like these personalities that you can't really put too much of yourself into. True. <laughs> but like, you know, that's the, it's a technology thing. Now that we have high def everything, I mean, you know, if you pick up even Final Fantasy X, you know, they hired an actor to do, you know, facial recognition acting uh, like Walt. For ten? Uh Yeah, for ten, And they, Damn. it was acted. It was voice acted the whole thing. Uh, very poorly in some moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ten is a very PS2 ass yeah. game. They kind of uh, they took away a lot of what I used to love, which was my job. My job was to like insert what was missing. You know, it's like this. I don't want to like get on too much of a tangent about this, but it's like it's literally the point of the show. You know, like in the uh, in the old days, like when we only had three Star Wars movies and they talked about the Clone War, I got to use my imagination as to what that meant. Like, oh, I served your father in the Clone War. Boom, my imagination just blossomed into what that meant. And then when they made these three prequel movies and showed me the Clone War, I'm like, uh, yeah. All right. So it was a trade dispute? <laughs> it was a trade dispute. 
Yeah, Clover was fucking boring. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, sometimes not telling people everything or fleshing out every detail, I actually like that because my imagination is more fun than your idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a uh, Lucas problem of giving people too much information. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. It's sort of a general, like, movies now problem, too. Oh, yeah. They really give it to... I mean, I was just watching the new Star Wars movies, and I couldn't believe where uh, they basically... You know, like, Leia would do something, and then some side character's like, Leia's doing this because blah, 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 blah. I'm like, did they just fucking spoon-feed me? Like, Yeah, what? they just... they There was a lot of exposition. Well, they also had to get around the fact that Leia had died <laughs> before they finished shooting. Yeah, bad example. Because the thing is, they did that for every character. It yeah, was there like, was a lot of exposition. They really, like, slam it down your throat as to why they're doing what they're doing. And I'm like, hey, guys, like, I'm a big boy. I can figure it out. I did uh, enjoy the new ones, but they were very exposition-heavy. They were very um, exposition heavy. Speaking was- of very exposition heavy, did you play the the remake of Disc One of Seven? I haven't um, actually played the Final Fantasy Seven remake yet because, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not finished yet, right? No, the, so it's basically just up until you leave the city. Um, okay, yeah, right. So I'm not touching that shit until it's done. Brandon <laughs> well, finished well, see, it. well, see, here's the, here's the thing. It it essentially covers the the first disc, like like Beth said. But it also it expands it so much. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're playing a half finished game. Yeah. It feels like they built a full game out of Midgar. I am excited to see a fully realized Midgar because I do have to say, um, I remember my first impression of Final Fantasy VII's darkness in that first disc was and then I don't know if you guys remember, but like there, you like make a wrong turn somewhere down one street. You end up at like a fence that looks like, you know, like one of these border internment camps we have now in this country. And then yeah. it's just like an open sky with stars. And they hit you with that Final Fantasy theme played with such delicacy. And I, I just put my controller down and sat there. I was just like, oh, my God. Like, oh, yeah. I definitely had that that moment a couple times in the remake of just being like, oh, so this is what Midgar is actually supposed to look like. Like it really, it, it was able to take the like what you sort of imagined they wanted it to look like, you know, because seven is such its design is so blocky that like it's a little you, it hasn't aged well. It hasn't. No, it hasn't really aged well at all. I mean, I, I, I like it aesthetically, but like it, it's really like pretty low fi. Yeah. Um, it's got like five polygons. <laughs> yeah, but like it, you can tell that the ambition of it is so much stronger than what they were able to do technically. Yeah, and the seven remake really it both pushes that as far as it can, both by like really fleshing out like like there's a there's a whole part where you go to Jesse's house that's like a two three hour little side thing that's one of the best parts of the whole game is that where you catch the chickens or the frogs or whatever you you catch uh no kids? i don't i don't i don't think so that's the one where you have to like sneak into somebody's house and like oh. fuck with their kitchen for a minute i just like <laughs> the um, one where you got to catch chickens i don't know they spend the whole they spend the entirety of the remake trying to make sephiroth make sense and they don't yeah they just but need they, to but, stop making trying to make sephiroth happen but they all they also <laughs> and like i, I don't i don't want to i won't spoil it too too heavy but it's it's not it's also not a strict one-to-one remake. Okay. Like, a- as you get to the end, it gets real fucky. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, they they really tried to, like, redesign and, like, make Sephiroth yeah. make sense. 
and like they they and the fact that Sephiroth is even in the first disc, which he's not in yeah. uh, the original, no. but like it really goes out of its way. It like it knows it's a remake. It knows everyone that's playing it knows the game, so it it really it picks its moments where it decides to go. Okay, you thought this was gonna happen, but he, actually, this is gonna happen, and uh, let's yeah. deal with that now. Seven is a holy grail property. They knew that you know they had to treat this one with a little bit of extra sauce. Oh, totally. And I think too that if they if they just remade it in 3D, I don't think it would have been as as good as it was. Like it, it it's it felt like the most fleshed out version of this like half Kingdom Hearts, half Final Fantasy battle system they've been trying to get right since like. 11. Well, so that was the big change, right? The battle system is now completely something else, isn't it? Um, it, it's it's sort of a, a hybrid of like you're mo you're running around and you're hacking and slashing, but you also have like a little active time meter that like as you build up, you know, the more you attack, you can then use your spells or a special move or something huh. like that. That's so like it, ballsy, I have to say that's it's ballsy. yeah, it's it's real it's real gutsy, but they also like. They they finally figured out how to do it right because like it doesn't feel like Kingdom Hearts where you're just kind of like whacking the square button for hours. Oh god, and hours we haven't and... even talked about. We can't even get into Kingdom god, Hearts. God, yeah, dude. we cannot get into Kingdom Hearts. We're not touching Kingdom Hearts on my second. Um, that's that's the modern heresy. I'm not touching that. Just. Yeah, but uh, it's also it, just regular heresy. That's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this the seven remake is is really worth checking out, especially if you're a fan of Final Fantasy, like both that particular game and as a property. However, you're not wrong. They have not announced when they're planning on doing the second half of the game, if at all. So, like, it's not going to be complete. It's probably not going to be just one more. I, I I, can't imagine this won't be at least three. I mean, they could really string. I mean, they're going to make a lot of money if they string this up. I mean, I oh, think we, yeah. can, we can sort of talk about remakes in general for a sec, because I think yeah. um, the yeah. remake thing is really, especially since people have figured out that you can kind of port an RPG to a smartphone. The remake scene is kind of booming right now. And personally, I'm not sure how I feel about that because, you know, we're talking about like they're bringing a lot of older games that we've all grown up with. And we, it's sort of like our gospel. Right. And then, you know, whenever they port these things and they change certain aspects, I find it really jarring. Personally, I'm like, oh, God, this isn't what I remember. I don't like I don't like the jarringness of trying to go back to something that I remember fondly and seeing you've dropped in a bunch of changes or new stuff really bothers me. Um uh, do you have you guys ever heard of a game called Lufia and the Fortress of Doom? Sounds familiar. Okay, so this was another like blockbuster video era special that I picked up. Lufia and the Fortress of Doom was was a fine game, and it starts with a prequel where you play the heroes and then they die in the Fortress of Doom or something, and then you go on and play as like their descendants. That game was fine, whatever. And then they realized that the best part of that game was playing as in the prequel, which lasts like ten minutes, and then boom, Lufia two. Uh, Rise of the Sinistrals comes out and that sequel takes your original heroes from the first game that died and you get to play their story, the prologue about how they got to where they were. Now that game was amazing. Great music, great story and it fell victim to one of the worst remakes in the history in the history of RPG rem remakes. Lufia 2 gets this really flashy remake on, uh, I want to say it was Nintendo DS and, you know, it was an original sort of Final Fantasy, you know, two style game originally, you know, pixel, no 3D, nothing turn based. Uh, and they take the story and 
completely throw away a hundred percent of the gameplay mechanics and they turn it into this kind of what really looked to me like a final fantasy remake kingdom heartsy kind of situation where you're you're 3d now on the ds and you're running around and the battle systems like you gotta hop and jump and and hit a bunch of stuff which had nothing to do with the original game and um this is one of my favorite stories i ever played i actually was so disturbed by how they like took my experience and like mangled it that uh i just yeah i mean it's kind of like i think soured the well a bit for me on all remakes and and, because i'm so leery of them now because of that that like when i heard final fantasy 7 was coming out i was like oh please don't fuck this up for everybody please yeah it's it's the 7 remake is great that's really good to hear. I might actually, you know, get past my uh, prejudice and give it a try. But that's one of the reasons I think I kind of uh, lean away from these remakes is even if they're just sort of like cosmetic, like, you know, they take the old SNES uh, pixel sprites and they kind of zhuzh them up for my iPhone. I'm like, don't do that. Like, like yeah. I'm fine. I don't need that. Don't. Yeah, no. Don't. Don't do that. It's just gonna. It's just gonna make me notice how much shittier it looks because the uh, the graphics are so good. I mean, yeah, I'm like, ah, uh, this isn't helping. <laughs> I mean, I I, th- I think at the end of the day, at least as far as I'm concerned, the the point of a of a remake, especially one that's been like twenty something years down the line, is to make is money? to make. Well, yeah, but like <laughs> ar- artistically, the point of a remake is to like. Is to make it feel like you remember it feeling, right. you know, rather than like if because if you just like exactly bring it up to a new console, that's whatever. But like if if you're able to take that feeling of like what it felt like to play Final Fantasy VII and have it be this massive world, and then really bring that up to modern standards, it's great. But if you do like like they remade the Ducktales NES game, which is one of my favorite NES games, but for whatever reason, it just didn't feel right despite looking like yeah. hand animated and completely Ooh. gorgeous <laughs> i'm sure it would have been you know fine now but you do have to pay respect to the origins of these games and you know i think there's something that, to be uh, said for nostalgia yeah well you know here's the thing there was a really interesting project that was floating around some years ago it was a fan project and uh fan projects are an interesting sort of phenomenon in the rpg community oh yeah Sometimes the fans get it right in a way that a studio probably could never get away with. Chrono Trigger has been one of the most sort of sued and litigated uh, properties because Chrono Trigger never really got a true sequel. It did get a sequel, but it wasn't like what people wanted. Uh, You know, there was no more games after that. So people have had to. That that would be Chrono Cross on the PS1. Right, right. So Chrono Cross was technically a direct sequel, but it just felt like a different property. It didn't really feel like Chrono anymore. And, um, you know, so people in the community, they couldn't let go of Chrono Trigger. They, They were so obsessed with this game that, you know, they all got together on like the forums back in the day. And they found people who knew how to program and all this stuff. And they started creating their own sequels to Chrono Trigger, uh, whether that be a remake of Chrono Trigger in like high fidelity 3D, like kind of like, you know, Mario 64 level uh, 3D um, that that got shut down uh, because I think Square wanted to do their own version of that. But, you know, so far, nothing's happened. I don't want that from Square either. (laughs) It looked like pretty good. But I agree with you. I'm like, I don't need it. I'm fine. I really, I mean, you could have it if you want, but eh, I, I could live with what I got. But the real gem that came out of this community was 
they uh out of pain respect of the lore that was created in this game there was this uh game that came out on the internet at i think it was 98 percent finished before uh squaresoft sued them into oblivion Ugh. it was called crimson echoes and it can still be found on the internet uh, I can't say where because it's illegal, but uh, you would basically patch a ROM of Chrono Trigger. You can you can just say Kazaa. <laughs> yeah, you know, LimeWire, whatever you're using nowadays. And uh, you would you would patch a ROM file of Chrono Trigger. And when you booted up the ROM file, it's the sequel to Chrono Trigger in the same visual, basically using the same sort of building blocks and tools that's on the actual uh, ROM file. Uh, but then they gave you a whole other sequel story, which I got to be honest, blew my mind. It was so good. I, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that like we we could do this. It made me almost want to get into the scene because I'm like, wait a minute, what else can we do? <laughs> you know, it was so inspiring to see that fans had basically created. I'm talking like 20 plus hours of gameplay here. This is like a serious undertaking. Um, and, you know, with the time travel dynamic and kind of exploring the ramifications of what happened in the first game when our heroes traveled through time and what does that really mean? Like, and they sort of like had this clever way of delving into what did they fuck up that was never even like touched on by the first game? You know, like, what does it really mean if you go into the past and you make somebody a kind person? Like, what could possibly go wrong if you do that? Yeah. Um, and, and that game went into that and it was fascinating because it was a lot darker than the original, but, uh, you know, it leaked and it's pretty complete and, uh, it's it just really goes to show that some of these older RPGs that are say like 20 years old now actually do potentially still have legs. I didn't need that to be 3d. I didn't need an updated battle system. I think like what, uh, these game companies need to realize is sometimes story story is, is enough. And, you know, for someone like me, uh, I, I just I was so happy to be back in that world with fresh toys to play with that. Uh, I'm for sure going to have to go look for that because I'm also very much a story person. Like the mechanics of like the fighting is the least interesting part to me, which I know is kind of like the antithesis of playing a video game. But like, I don't know, at a certain point, you just it's the same thing over and over again and you get used to it. But that's not why I'm playing. I'm playing because right. I want to progress this really great I'm a big fan of like world building in general, you know, that's why I'm a story developer. That's why I'm a professional story developer is like world building stuff is so cool to me. I watch Brandon play a lot of games because I'm like obsessed with the design and the world building of RPGs, even if I don't play a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I'm right there with you. Uh, it's, it's really the stories and the worlds and the people and the characters and, you know, the lessons that they teach you w when you're young, you know, about like courage and not giving up. It's all very positive. It's kind of like... Yeah like anime now like it's all about teamwork yeah for the most it's, part. It, generally the messages that you are given are very advanced for your age and they're all very positive and reaffirming and uh i mean it would be a lie to say that the person i am today has a lot to do with the games i played as a young man it really it really does have you seen the uh they just released a thing called the collection of mana on the switch oh yeah which... well, i have it <laughs> Have, well, have you put well? Because part of it is they, it's Secret of Mana, the second one, and then it also includes Trials of Mana, which had never been released in the states. Right. So that um, was like Secret of Mana three in Japan, uh, and it's finally gotten an official release here. I actually did start playing it recently, and um, I have to say, I'm like blown away by how hard it is. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. It's actually like genuinely difficult. I'm probably gonna have to pick up a. Uh, 
like a, a, a walkthrough somewhere online and just grind away at it. But uh, it's really cool that we finally got that game. I, I would have killed for this when I was like 11. But, you know, I'll take it at 36. That's fine. Yeah, I'll take it. I'm super stoked that they're finally giving these things the light of day because they should have done this. Like, who are these people that make these decisions? You know, I like want to go and like slap Enix in the face. I feel like a lot of people do. Yeah. So before before we uh, wrap up, are there any uh, side quests about our old school RPGs that we haven't covered that uh, you would like to cover? And by side quests, I mean things. I mean, final thought. I mean, I think I got, that was cool. I got to sort of like talk about RPGs for an hour. That made me super happy. Um, (laughs) We didn't really get to talk about Final Fantasy VI. Oh, fuck yeah. uh, Let's talk about it. Much, but um, the only thing I would say was uh, Final Fantasy VI, it was really in preparing for this uh, interview, I kind of started, I got like sucked into this rabbit hole of watching this, this guy basically talk you through every plot point in Final Fantasy with like, you know, the game playing in the background on YouTube. And I I just like listening to, uh, you know, the plot and the story. Even now, like I knew the story, I played through it multiple times. I was just so like, it really grabbed me. And I was like, you know, the only like message I would sort of leave people with is like revisit some of these older properties. Like even if you think you know the story, because the way that they read to me now as an adult versus how they read to me when I was eight years old are obviously very different. Well, also, I was going to ask you this earlier. Have you I know there's like a dude. I don't know if you've ever seen this series, but I know that you do speak quite a bit of Japanese and there's always a little bit of difference. There's some stuff that's lost in translation, I feel like, with those games. And I know there's a guy, Brandon, you watched it, right? Yeah. There's a guy who does this great series on Final Fantasy VII of playing through it in Japanese and comparing it to the English subtitles and, like, breaking down the differences that it makes to the plot. I believe it's called Let's Mosey, which is uh, a line from uh, the original translation of Final Fantasy VII, I believe. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, it's, it's this guy who... Uh, it's American guy who lived in Japan for like a decade, uh, basically just going through sort of beat by beat of Final Fantasy seven and explaining like the translation differences and like why some of the some of the lines in there feel kind of weird. And he sort of analyzes like why that is like a lot of it has to do with a tr- with a translator who maybe didn't have the context of what was happening in the rest of the game. You know, uh, so it was just this kind of like stabs in the dark, but it's it's a really, really interesting look at like just how much nuance and texture can get lost. It's very interesting what America decided to censor. And this isn't even just yeah. this is really all Nintendo games. Uh, if you look at like, you know, a, a, a property like Castlevania. The sort of like, you know, these very religious sort of iconography that Japan takes a lot of liberties with Evangelion, anybody? Yeah. Um, You know, uh, well, they're not a primarily Christian nation to them. It's just a fun little, you know, fantasy that white people believe in. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, uh, as as Americans, you know, we take our Christianity so seriously. And, you know, Japan does not. Okay, and so like in a lot of their properties, you know, things come over here, a little bit of casual nudity here and there. Yeah, we're going to wipe that right away. I'm putting bras on NES sprites is one of my like Google, like like putting like underwear on sprites. Uh, You will see all the things that American programmers had to do to release these games. America in general cares a lot more about. I mean, I've worked a lot with international comics 
and the things that we've had to censor from international comics compared to like the reverse um like for example europeans find americans uh casualness with violence horrifying but we're like oh no better not see a boob like we just have such a but they don't care they don't care about sexuality that's a normal human thing but but like We'll yeah. actually make it more violent, believe it. Like, I think there was one property where we took the blood was white in a game and we turned it red. We wanted more blood. But then we covered up, we covered the areola of the statue on like level two. That's, that's who we are. They also made Luigi's bulge significantly less visible in Mario 2. Because we wouldn't version. want kids getting excited about Luigi's bulge now. That's a, It's that's still a, pretty visible, but it's not as Look, visible. While Luigi is all the sex you need. But that's the thing. Wow. I mean, you know, Final Fantasy VI. There's all this like torture and poisoning. But like, oh, as long as the boob is covered, that's fine. But that's the thing. As a kid, I saw through the bullshit, and um, I liked that they didn't hold punches on. Sir, cover the boob all you want. I didn't mind. It was okay. I knew it was there underneath the fabric for us when we were older. And you know, this the story was the one thing I was like, please don't fuck with my story. Please don't don't nerf my my plot or or the, you know sometimes the dialogue you know the, there would be characters that would like curse in japanese i guarantee you none of that made it over here <laughs> uh, in chrono trigger frog apparently talks like a truck driver ha ha funny funny right yeah. but in chrono trigger here in the states the original release he talks like hello madam thou art looking for mine mine sword and it's like what where did that come from like that wasn't even in the script he wasn't supposed to talk like that in japanese is like hey baby why do you want to step, step on my green rod <laughs> and that was just like a strong choice that um one translator was probably forced to make let's be real i'm not going to blame the translator on that because you know it was censorship laws and uh if i have to say one final thing in this interview it is to pay respect to one man do you know that most rpgs from squaresoft and other companies were translated to English by one person? No. That makes sense. Ted Woolsey. Ted Woolsey, the man, the myth, the legend, is responsible for translating most of our classic RPGs into English for us. But not just that, localizing them as well. So if there's references in Japanese that make no sense in English, he would come up with some little quip in English that we'd all chuckle about because we understood what he was talking about. One guy was responsible for that, that company. Ted Woolsey and some of the funniest uh, lines ever to come out of RPGs are thanks to this guy. And sometimes uh, <laughs> he would have like this one line in uh, Chrono Trigger, which definitely was never said in Japanese. Uh, you know, Glenn is having a flashback and his friend Cyrus is like, oh, Glenn, you're a marshmallow. You know, you're, you're... <laughs> and that was his way of saying the Japanese character is like, you're too soft. You need to harden up. Oh, you're a marshmallow. That's you're very said. sentimental. Yeah, right. And um, when they modernized Chrono Trigger and they did this re-release and retranslation, which was more faithful to the Japanese script, uh, they took out all of these Woolsey-isms, as they're called. And I was devastated when yeah, I played through Yeah, they give the game character. Yeah. It's like the people that were pissed off about the uh, Evangelion Netflix dub. I also can't believe... Redubbing something that's been around for this long, you better have a damn good reason in my book. I it might have just been a rights thing. I have no idea. It, it probably was. They probably couldn't license the original dub from another company because a lot of these companies, believe it or not, don't exist anymore. They went bankrupt years ago. Yeah. So, you know, if they have a... Like, or the there's Akira just, dub. like, not a ton of file... Again, like, this is just from my experience from working with, like, Power Rangers. Like, they didn't save shit. Like, they didn't think they were ever going to need this stuff again. A lot of these files just don't exist. 
Right. So, you know, the VHS is all you got. It's like this is the, the only record of the and it's it's really a shame because, you know, like um, some of these dubs are fucking awful. But my God, are they are they gold now? They're classic. Yeah. I don't know where uh, in in this house Brandon is a uh, subs uh, is a uh, dubs guy and I'm a subs guy. It's fun. Yeah, I see both. I see both depending on the on the. If it's really old, I'm like, yeah, show me what you got, dub, because I love the freedom with which dubs were like the wild west in the '90s. You kind of do anything you fucking wanted because they didn't think anyone was going to see this stuff. You see, I don't. I don't really love those. I don't love the like old sort of like Lupin the Third from the '70s. Like we're just going to say a lot of words really fast. Kind <laughs> kind that. of dub. Like I, I I don't tend to like those, but new, newer dubs where there's actually like context and uh you know it's not just an an you know a repertory company from Dallas that Funimation hired. Yeah, but that's the thing. Just watch the Japanese one at that point. <laughs> yeah. You know what? At the end of the day, I can't fucking hear anything when I'm watching TV because I'm just fucking deaf Old. for some reason. So I'm going to have the subtitles on either way, so I might as well just watch the subs. Yeah. So subtitles is a, is another battle we have in this house. I don't mind subtitles on a drama, but I can't stand subtitles on a comedy. He thinks it ruins the jokes. It does. It does. It absolutely does. We also watch it for like RuPaul's Drag Race. We watch subs. And the problem is the timing. You know, when they're about to announce the winner, you know, they'll like hit us with the sub before it happens. I'm like, hey! Great British Bake Off. I have trained myself to just like turn my head away and not look at the screen until they've announced <laughs> because I, yeah. I've gotten it spoiled in the, in the uh, subtitles for me before. very wise. I'm yeah. going to try from now on. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us, Matt. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks, thanks for riffing with me about RPGs, guys. Hell that was yeah. like super fun for me to just like scratch that that twenty year old itch with you. Uh, that was really cool. Thank super you. Well, you're welcome to come back and step on our green wands anytime. Oh yeah, Hell the yeah. green rods, baby. Green, uh, rods. green frog wand. And uh, if you guys ever want to talk about like anime or or Japanese shit, uh, oh, we did an anime episode, but we'll come back to you. Don't oh, you we're going to talk about. I want to talk about old anime. I want to talk about that blockbuster it could be blockbuster video dreams part two because it's like the <laughs> anime that you could only find at a blockbuster video there was the same five vhs's that everyone <laughs> in the company had uh and those are like great i had a dream last night that i was driving down sunset and where the uh the happy sad foot was there was just a giant blockbuster sign <laughs> and it made me so happy and then i woke up yeah r.i.p happy sad foot yeah, RIP happy um, foot. Matt, if people wanted to find more of like you or your content on the internet, uh, where could they go? I know you've released, you guys have released some new songs and stuff recently, right? Yeah, so um, I will definitely plug my band. I am in a uh, American J-Rock band called Nakitora, Crying Tiger. And you could find us on Facebook by searching for Naki, N-A-K-I, Tora, T-O-R-A, Crying Tiger. Nice. Yeah, they do some fucking wild stuff. I've listened to you guys, obviously. We're on YouTube. Stuff. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you want to see some videos, uh, you know, just search the band name. It'll come up. Uh, but not to be confused with the spicy Thai dish featuring sizzling beef. Uh, usually that is the other thing that uh, Google thinks <laughs> you're looking for when you're looking for my band. Perfect. That's Sizz design. Sizzling Beef is an incredible lead guitar player. I, I can't get over it. <laughs> sizzling Beef has come a long way since he was young. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be he's going to be the next Buckethead, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Brandon. Yeah, if you want to find more of uh, this mess, uh, I'm at Hell Yes Brandon on all of the socials and on SoundCloud where I've got some stuff. Uh, my band Inkblot has some tracks up on YouTube and some live shows, which I think are a, a fun example of of how we sound. Um, 
happy sappy grown-up hours third wednesday of every month um i don't know if we're gonna have a december show we'll see um yeah i think that's really it i don't really have all that much well i mean this will be out hopefully your ep will be out soon or out already by the time this comes out yeah my ep hat and a hat i want to uh i'm hoping to have out by the end of the year which is we're uh, very close to y'all it's coming we're so close to being done with 2020 I'm I'm sure if I, if I get it finished, I'll record like a you know KTEL Records commercial for it that we'll all just throw at the top of the podcast well, for a couple episodes. You got three more weeks before you're a liar. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you can find me uh, all over the internet at at B Scores with an underscore after the S. Um, but the easiest way to find me would be to follow the show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at @IntuitPod, and um, you can follow the hashtag IntuitPod on Instagram, which is how you'll find me because I do all our posting. Uh, we're also on Facebook if you know you're still there for some reason. Mileage may vary. Um, but either way, uh, we hope that maybe you can uh, subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a week. And, uh, yeah, I don't really have anything to plug, except that actually, um, we also don't know if we're going to be doing a Christmas show, um, our Twitch show that we do on, uh, live on the Pack Theater Twitch is going to be, uh, oh no, we do! I can announce that here, whatever, it's gonna be in three weeks. In three weeks, we're going to be on our Christmas Eve show, uh, we are going to be doing our Twitch show, we're gonna be talking about Die Hard with, uh, Andrew Falkenhainer, who you may remember from the Animal Crossing episode. It's gonna be a blast, we're very excited. Uh, and that same week, we're, uh, finally releasing our episode, um, on the anniversary of the downfall of civilization, the movie Cats. Uh, we will be releasing an episode with, again, previous guest, uh, Alex Vasella. Uh, that's coming out on the 21st. Oh my god, No, I was doing that under you. Do Jellico Cats. so loud. No, don't encourage him. Anyway... Funny story, we recorded this episode about cats in July, so, you know, buckle up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're, I'm pretty sure there's lots of, like, oh, God, what's happening sort of references in it. But, yeah, we're we're rounding the corner on the year. We got one more episode next week, then we got cats, and then we got that Twitch show, and then 2020 is fucking over unless, you know, time decides to change and suddenly, it would, it would this year just suddenly become, you know, January 2020 yeah. again. Yeah, we just decide to do 2020 again. No, cannot do. Ugh. No, thank you. Well, with all that being said... Actually, Matt, did you ever play the Cats RPG they released on Game Gear? Oh my god. Is that a real thing? Uh, Skimble Shanks is incredibly OP. No, it's uh, not a real thing. He just thinks he's funny. And oh, Buster Jones is a, uh, you know Jones what? Is a good tank. I wouldn't put it past Japan because I, they love Cats the Musical. It's like everywhere. It's in anime in the 80s and 90s. Like they just sprinkle it in like, oh, we're performing Cats here in Tokyo. I'm like, what the fuck? What is up with Cats? <laughs> I've been asking, we've all been asking ourselves that collectively as a society since the 80s. Oh, my dad fell asleep uh, when he took me to Cats when I was a kid. He fell asleep and he <laughs> That's snored. That's fair. That's fair. So There's no plot. That. Take that, uh, everybody who likes cats. Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> yes, especially you. You know, just if you're if you're gonna play Mungo Jerry, it, it's like picking odd job. Like it's really not fair to the people you're you're playing multiplayer with. All right, all right, <laughs> all right. So uh, all all that being said, um, who's ready to start the episode over on New Game Plus? Oh, oh! podcast over. Podcast over. Oh!